All right, good morning, church. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Acts chapter 20, picking up where we left off last week, will be in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you in the pew. And as always, if you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. Go ahead and take that with you today. Today we have Paul as he's saying farewell to the Ephesian elders. And this one section um, here, Paul is addressing a, a predominantly or a, a Christian audience. And so usually in Acts, Paul is addressing Greeks and he's addressing Jews in an evangelistic setting, but this is more of a discipleship setting, more, much like what we have here today. And really he's giving his farewell address. Now over, over history, there's been some famous farewell addresses, probably none more famous than Lou Gehrig's as he said farewell to baseball on July 4th, 1939. You might remember Lou Gehrig said these words, fans, for the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break I got. Yet today, day, 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 remember that? I consider myself, self, 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 to be the luckiest man, 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 on the face of the earth. earth, earth. Y'all remember that? I thought if I did that, it would help jar your memory. Uh, so Lou Gehrig gave this farewell speech, and whenever you give a farewell speech, it grabs people's attention, and this is what Paul's doing. Paul has called for the elders to meet him there in Miletus, and so he's going to give them this farewell speech. Another famous speech, not necessarily a farewell speech, was given by Theodore Roosevelt, our 26th president, prior or before he became president, and he gave this in 1883, it called Duties of the American Citizen, and I thought this was interesting. Of course, in one sense, the first essential for a man's being a good citizen is his position of the home virtues of which we think when we call a man by the emphatic adjective of manly. No man can be a good citizen who is not a good husband and a good father, who is not honest in his dealings with other men and women, faithful to his friends and fearless in the presence of his foes who has not got a sound heart, a sound mind, and a sound body, exactly as no amount of attention to civic, civil duties will save a nation if the domestic life is undermined. I just wanted you to catch that last part. No amount of attention to civil duties will save a nation if the domestic life is undermined. We live in a nation who has utterly undermined the home, the role of a father, the role of men. And as Paul calls these Ephesian elders, he's calling men of the church to be manly, to be men who are honest, men who are godly, men who lead their homes well, who serve their church well, who are honest in their dealings with others. And so as he calls these elders, he talks to them about being a Christ-centered Christian life. And it's not just for the men. Really, the words that Paul says here in his farewell address can apply to all believers of all times and all places, of what it looks like to have a Christ-centered Christian life. So the question we must all ask ourselves this morning is, what will your life's farewell speech say to others? As you breathe your last, as you enter into eternity, what will your life have said about the glory of Jesus Christ? 
When people look at the witness of how you live out your life, how you are honest in your dealings, how you lead your home, how you lead your business, how you talk in your community with your friends and with your family and with those who pass by you, what will your legacy be in your failure speech? Acts chapter 20, 17 through 38. I would like to read that entirety and then we'll pray and then we'll break it into different sections. So let's read. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day as I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of the repentance towards God and of the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to the God of the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown, that you, shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they, they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the witness of a man named Paul, a man who was Christ-centered in all of his dealings. Father, we thank you for his example. We thank you for the writings that we have that were inspired by the Holy Spirit that speak truth and speak life into our bodies. Lord, that we would be people, that we would be followers of you that are Christ-centered. Lord, today I pray that the indwelling power of your spirit would lead and guide us into all truth, that it would expose areas of our life that we need to be convicted of, that it would lead us to areas of repentance, and it would challenge us to live a life that is solely focused on you and not on ourselves. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. First thing I want you to see is a Christ-centered Christian life serves humbly. 
A Christ-centered Christian life serves humbly. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that, ha what, that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He says there, how I lived among you the whole time. He was being watched. Paul's life was a Christ-centered life, and it was one of integrity and consistency. It wasn't one of perfection. Now, we can look at Paul, and we can think, man, that guy, he had it all together. The thing was, with Paul, he was consistent. It wasn't perfection. God was working on him and sanctifying him just as he does all of us. The thing about a Christian life that is Christ-centered is that it's one of integrity. That people can look at our lives and they can see that there is something different in us because of the spirit that lives and dwells us. Chuck Swindoll put it this way. Few things are more infectious than a godly lifestyle. The people you rub shoulders with every day need that kind of challenge. Not prudish, not preachy, just crackerjack clean living. Just honest to goodness, bone deep, non-hypocritical integrity. The people around us need... Not prudish, not preachy, but bone-deep, non-hypocritical integrity. He says, how I lived among you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials. A Christ-centered attitude leads to a Christ-centered action. It was Paul's attitude that led his life the whole time he was there in Ephesus. And people took notice of it. You know, the interesting thing is people will look at your life before they will listen to your words. Do you know that? Even those outside the church who are not believers are watching and examining who we are and how we live as Christians. They even build their initial understanding of who Jesus is by how we declare him to be in our life. Did you get that part? People who do not know Christ will build their initial understanding of who Jesus Christ is by who we declare him to be with our lives. Oh, I don't, I don't know about that because so-and-so was a Christian and I heard this about them. I've seen this about them. I've witnessed this about them. You see, people are more inclined to read your life before they are inclined to read the Bible. People are watching. Church, I would ask you, what does your life teach them about Jesus Christ? Paul's life, not just the words he said, but his life was a witness to who Jesus Christ is. His life, you saw how I lived the whole time, is what he said. How I served with humility and tears and trials. In Galatians 2.20, Paul would write these words. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself me. Paul's mindset, Paul's attitude was the fact that he no longer lived, but it was Christ who lived in him. He had given up his life. It is no longer mine. It is all his. I am a Christ-centered Christian life. A.B.W. Tozer, he points out the problem with this is that the problem is not to persuade God to fill us, but to want God sufficiently to permit him to do so. The average Christian is so cold and contented with his wretched condition that there is no vacuum of desire into which the blessed spirit can rush in satisfying fullness. What Tozer is saying here is that for many Christians, they're content to be a contemporary, a contemporary Christian or a cultural Christian 
and not a Christ-centered Christian. They're content to live the way that the world does, to live the way everyone else does, but claim Christ in such a way that their life doesn't show Christ because they are content with their wretched condition. And there's no deep desire for God to come in and fill them that they would die and allow Christ to live in and through them. There's a guy by the name of Manfold George Gutsky who wrote a commentary on Galatians and he says this, think of a pianist who sits down at the piano. Now there's anybody in this room that could sit down and hit keys in any form or fashion and make noise. But there's only few, like Nancy, who can sit down and play beautiful notes and chords. He said, imagine that you, you sit down at the, at the little stool at the piano and you have your hands ready and a master pianist comes and sits and fills your hands with his hands and begins to play. And beautiful songs are beginning to be heard. It's the life of a Christian who sits there and says, I can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ that would give him glory and honor and reverence, but through the Holy Spirit who indwells me, how he fills my life, he begins to play a beautiful melody that gives him glory and honor and praise. It is worship to him. This is the life that Paul sought to live. He says in that commentary, a Christian person in the home acts the way he is inwardly led. The Christian woman in the community acts the way she is inwardly led. A Christian young person in school acts the way he or she is inwardly led. Students, you will act the way that Jesus Christ fills you and moves through you if you are inwardly led by him. It's a Christ-centered Christian life. This is because the Christian is led from within by the Holy Spirit of God who makes the things of Christ real to him. Christ liveth in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. As Paul writes these words, he says, look, you've witnessed how I've lived, how my life has been Christ-centered, how I have died to myself and how I live in Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 2, he tells us to have the same attitude as that of Christ. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, Paul writes, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, com complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, listen, if you want to see godly action, Christ-centered action in your life, then have this mind, which is yours in Christ. It's Christ's mindset. Who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, our worship in Christ-centered Christian lifestyle is to have the mind of Christ, to allow our mind to change. A Christ-centered life begins with Christ-centered assurance. I, I would ask you, are you assured today of your salvation? 
That what Christ has done on your behalf is the finished work, that you have been made right. That is atonement. At one moment, he has paid the price for all of your sins and that he was the substitutionary atonement, taking your place, taking the punishment of those sins and taking them to the cross and then dying and being risen to newness of life so that we know that we have everlasting life with him. Are you assured of that decision? Let me ask you, are you assured because there's a powerful presence of the Holy Spirit convicting you of the sin that is in your life? Leading you and sanctifying you and drawing you closer to Jesus Christ? Is there an inwardly presence of God that you are assured of? I can guarantee you, Paul would say, I am, I am assured of this. That he who began a good work in me will see it to completion. That there is, there is something in me that is not of me. There's nothing good in me apart from Jesus Christ. So there's an assurance that gives birth to a Christ-centered attitude, the mind of Christ. I have this assurance that God has saved me and he's indwelled me. He has sealed me with his spirit. And now the life I live, I no longer live for myself, but I live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is my attitude. And that attitude that I have will produce a Christ-centered action in my, in my obedience to him. And this is what the life of Paul was on display for the Ephesian elders. The remarkable truth of, the, of a Christ-centered Christianity is that Jesus Christ died for us so that he might live in and through us. Spurgeon points out to have the mind of Christ means to have a selfless mind. You are humble. You think of others before you think of yourself. You're a sacrificial mind. You're willing to go to whatever lengths need to be gone to worship God with your life and a serving mind, that you would serve as Jesus Christ came to serve. For who can understand the mind of the Lord and so instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. We have the mind of Christ. It's remarkable. This remarkable truth is that Jesus died in our place and now fills us with his presence so that we can live the resurrection life now and for eternity. A Christ-centered Christian life, number two, speaks boldly. It serves humbly, it speaks boldly. Look there, verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He says that there in verses 20 and 21, and then again in 26 and 27. He did not shrink back. This word shrink is an interesting word. It means to, to back down or to draw back the sails in a sail ship, in a, in a, in a, sip, a ship that's sailing so that you will kind of back off, like, whoa, we're going too fast here. Let me, let me pull back on these. Let me avoid what's coming. And so it's this unwillingness to move straight forward, to shrink back. A Christ-centered Christian witness doesn't shrink back from declaring what is profitable. It doesn't shrink back from declaring the word of God. It doesn't shrink back from calling those that are around us to repentance. It doesn't shrink back for fear of hurting someone's feelings or being politically correct or even in an effort to keep the peace. Paul's life was one that was lived that was 
speaking boldly what was profitable and the truth of God's word. It reminds me of our readings this week, if you're going through the chronological Bible with us in Ezekiel, how there was a watchman on the tower. Ezekiel chapter 3, 18 and 19 says, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die from his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity. But you will have delivered your soul. Again, in chapter 33, 7 and 9. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear the word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have been delivered, you will have delivered your soul. Basically what it's saying here is there's a watchman, and in ancient times there were guards, they were stationed on the city walls, they were stationed on hilltops, and they were stationed in different watchtowers. And they had one job, and their job was to warn the, the town, the population, if the enemy was coming, if there was going to be certain danger. And so if they failed to do that, it was, it was on their hands. The blood was on their hands. You didn't tell us that the enemy was coming. You didn't tell us that, that we were in danger. And so this is what Ezekiel is to be spiritually, to warn the people that, hey, danger is coming. And if you don't warn them of their sin, if you don't warn them of what's going on, the blood's on your hands. And so when Paul says, listen, I have not shrunk back from telling you everything that was profitable. I have not shrunk back from calling you to repentance. I have not shrunk back from the difficult things that God has told me to say to you. If you continue in your path towards sin, my hands are clean. I I'm not going to be held accountable because I did what God called me to do. He called me to speak boldly the truth, to be a watchman. Church, if we live a Christ-centered Christian life, there are times where we have to have uncomfortable conversations with people who are living in lifestyles that we know go against the word of God. And we don't shrink back from that. We boldly proclaim the word of God because it's profitable for their life. Charles Spurgeon said this, one of the devices of Satan is that he seeks to lull God's prophets into slumber. For he knows that dumb dogs that are given to sleep will never do any very great injury to his cause. The wakeful watchman, he always fears, for then he cannot take the city by surprise. But if he can cast God's watchman into slumber, then he is well content and thinketh it almost as well as to have a Christian asleep as to have him dead. He would certainly sooner see him in hell, but next to that, he is most glad to see him rocked into the cradle of presumption fast asleep. Unfortunately, for a lot of the Christian church today, we have allowed ourselves to fall into the slumber and the sleep of, well, we don't say that because that would hurt someone's feelings. Oh, we don't say that because that's not politically correct. We don't say that because that's the wrong pronoun. We don't say that because of this or because of this or because of this. We are called to be watchmen. We're called to live a Christian life in such a way that speaks boldly the word of Christ. 
And we do it because we know it's profitable. We know that it can lead people from death to life. We know that it can save them from consequences of sin that would lead them down a path that would utterly destroy their life because the enemy comes to seek and devour. He wants to destroy the walk of a Christian. So we speak boldly. Thirdly, a Christ-centered Christian life stays the course. Serves humbly, speaks boldly, stays the course. Acts 20, verses 22 through 25. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul says these words and basically he says, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem and I know it's not gonna be good. I know that there's gonna be persecution, there's gonna be affliction, there could even be death and you will never see this face again but I have proclaimed to you the truth of God. He pours himself out in this farewell address to the Ephesian elders and he says, listen, my life is of no value except that I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. I just wanna finish and I just want to finish well. Christian, let me ask you, are you finishing well in the ministry that God has given you? I mean, has it ever dawned on you or ever occurred to you that ministry is not just for some believers, but for all believers? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been filled with the Spirit of God, you have been called to a ministry. It may not be this ministry. It may not be someone else's ministry. It will be your ministry. Every one of us has been given a ministry. So my question is, what is yours? You have a ministry. Do you know what God's called you to? Do you know what, what course he's put you on? Students, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life and you've been filled with the presence of his spirit, he's given you a gift for the ministry to glorify him. So what, what has God called you to? You've been called to live a Christ-centered Christian life. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. For there are variations of gifts, but the same Spirit. 1 Peter 4, 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Romans 12, 38, or 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as one body, we have many members, and the members do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them in prophecy in proportion to our faith, in service, in our serving, to the one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Every single one of us has been given a gift by the Spirit. If we are believers in Jesus Christ and we've been given a ministry, what is your ministry? And are you staying the course? Are you finishing well? 
Tony Morita puts it this way, holiness is necessary for faithfulness in ministry. You may be gifted to do the work to which God has called you, but if you aren't godly, then you won't have a ministry. These are strong words by Tony Morita. Basically what Tony Morita is saying, look, you can be talented. You can be talented, you could have these gifts, you could have these natural abilities, God could have given you these, but unless you are pursuing holiness and righteousness and Christ first and his kingdom, you won't have a ministry because you will be leading people towards a selfish Christianity rather than a Christ-centered Christianity. These are difficult words, but we are to be a people who serve humbly, who finish wisely, who finish the race. So here's the question that arises, have you finished the course? In the ministry that God's given you, are you finishing well? Paul would say this in Philippians 1, 21 through 27. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Second Timothy 4, 6-7, through 7, Paul writes these words, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Are you finishing well? Many of us, we start off well. It's like when you get into a race and you go to run a marathon or a half marathon and everyone's there and you see all the runners and you think, oh, I can keep up with them. And you start off really well and a couple of miles in, you're not gonna finish very well, right? Because you didn't run your race. How are you finishing? A lot of us started off well. Maybe we went to a youth camp or we went to a revival and we made decisions to follow Christ and as time and our energies have faded we've grown weary in doing good we need to finish well fourth one is a Christ-centered Christian life stresses discipleship verse 28 pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and form among your own selves, and, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance along with all those who are being sanctified. The Apostle Paul emphasizes two key principles to biblical discipleship. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. 
Discipleship, personal discipleship is to live biblically. You examine yourself based on God's word. Am I living a biblical lifestyle? Number two, mutual discipleship. We teach biblically so that we can hold ourselves to a biblical lifestyle. There is, there is growth in gathering and mutual upbuilding. He says, be on guard. This word on guard is the Greek word prosciutto. Not what you eat, right? That was a different thing. But um, it's a naval term, which meant to moor up or tie up a ship. So you get this imagery of there being a, a ship that has come into harbor and they tie it up. So it doesn't what? Drift away. Because if you don't tie that ship to the harbor, it will eventually begin to drift back out, drift away. And so he's saying, look, you need to take careful, pay careful attention, be on guard, sure yourself up, moor yourself up, hold yourself to scripture because apart from scripture, your vessel will begin to, will begin to drift away like a ghost ship driven into the sea by the latest current of culture, latest wind of doctrine, or the latest storm of seduction. So personal discipleship, keeping yourself from drifting from God, along with mutual discipleship. He says, from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Hold yourselves to God's word. Don't allow yourselves to drift from God's word as a corporate body of believers. Jesus would even say in Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says, listen, the major concern for the church today is not that those outside the church can shift our doctrine, it's those inside the church that can shift our doctrine. It's not the secular unchristian that causes doctrinal drift. It's not the blatant sinner who has no love for God that has the ability to disrupt or distort the church's doctrine. It's the one who shifts their doctrine who is inside the church. It's the one who softens on personal discipleship and the one who allows doctrinal drift personally that then goes and teaches that same doctrinal drift to those who are in the congregation with them. Sound doctrine is important because there's a temptation by all believers to drift away from the truth. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11, Paul says this, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has departed me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. What a temptation it is for believers to untie themselves from Scripture and to drift towards the love of this world. What happened to the Ephesian church after Paul wrote these words? We find out in Revelation chapter 2, the letter written to the, to the church of Ephesus. 2 verses 1 through 4, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have gr not grown weary. They've done well, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. 
Let me ask you, church, as much as you spend time in Scripture, as much as you tie yourself to it, have you allowed yourself to drift from your first love? Have you allowed yourself to drift away from your love of Jesus Christ? Finish well. Hold to sound doctrine. Hold on to Christ. And here's the last one. A Christ-centered Christian life supports the weak. He says there in verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. These words, as far as I can tell, they're not found in the Gospels. This means that the early church, they knew things that Jesus would have said, and this was one of the things that Jesus would have said, and they were passing it on one to another. Hey, remember what the word of the Lord said. Remember what Christ said himself. It's more blessed to give than receive. Remember how he lived his life. It was more blessed to give than to receive. Remember the example, that Christ-centered example that we were given. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You see, a Christ-centered Christian life is one of grace-motivated living and grace-motivated giving. You can't miss it. Grace-motivated living and grace-motivated giving. It's so easy to think about our Christianity in just what we do. Our pursuit of holiness, our right and wrong lists. We think about our sins and our shortcomings. And it's easy to forget about the people who God has surrounded us with that are in desperate need. Don't always look at your own interests and your own needs, but look at the needs of others. I'm going to close with a story that Stephen Cole, a pastor, tells. He says, early one morning years ago, an American serviceman was making his way back to the barracks in London. He saw a little boy with his nose pressed against the window of a bakery, staring in silence. The serviceman's heart went out to the little boy, probably an orphan. Son, would you like one of those? Oh, yeah, I would. The serviceman stepped inside and bought a dozen. He took the bag outside to the boy and said, here you are. As he turned away to walk, he felt a tug on his coat. He heard the child ask him quietly, Mister, are you God? When you give, we act as God does. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son. As God's people, we should be givers, not only at Christmas, but all the time. Christ-centered Christian life is one of grace-motivated living and grace-motivated giving. Church, I ask you, is your life centered on Christ today? If not, I encourage you to respond. Respond with repentance. Respond with a covenant with him. Reassure that statement of faith that you made to him a long time ago. Maybe you said, I started well, but I'm not finishing well. And today, I want to finish well. 
Maybe today you ask him, what ministry is it that you have me to do? How can you live in and through me for your glory? Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can we pray? Can we respond? Father, we come to you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that we have an example like Paul. But God, more importantly, we thank you for the example of your son, Jesus Christ, how you came into this world, how you put on humility, how you walked the perfect life that we can't live and you died the death that we should lie, that we should have died so we can have life and have it everlasting. Father, I pray for this church right now that we would be so Christ-centered, that our lives would look more and more like you and less and less like ourselves, that we would be motivated by a grace-motivated living and a grace-motivated giving, that you would help us to love as you love, to care as you care, Lord, help us to be on guard, to be alert of spiritual drift. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?